The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're listening in on our latest live journal club. Here it is. Hello, everybody. Welcome to EVRMA's third live online journal club. For those of you who are returning, welcome back. If it's your first time with us, welcome. We hope you enjoy this journal club. Let's get started. Um, today we're talking about a very timely topic, artificial intelligence, how it's reshaping assisted reproduction, and what are some of the challenges and promises these technologies offer our field. We've all read many papers on using artificial intelligence in reproduction, but when we were organizing these events, we thought it would be great to start with an overview of what exactly are artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks, and so forth. And so today for this journal club, we'll change the format a little bit. First, Dr. Antonio Pellicer and Dr. Kevin Lofke are going to give us an introduction on AI and how it can be applied to our field. Then we'll move on to the paper presentations by Lorena Bori and Dr. Jared Lettery, uh, which showcase two, I think, very good examples of how we can use this technology in our, in our field to very good applications. And as always, we'll be taking questions from the audience. Please send them in through the little Q&A button on the bottom of your screen, and we'll, we'll answer them during the discussion after the papers. Our first speakers are Dr. Pellicer, who is the co-founder and CEO of EVRMA Global, as well as professor at the University of Valencia, and Dr. Lovke, who is the head of data science at A-Life Health, a company developing AI products for the IVF field. Let's get started with Dr. Pellicer, whenever you're ready. Thanks, uh, Andres. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank uh, uh, again Andres and Raseli, Thea, and all the team for organizing these uh, journal clubs. I think it's a tremendous effort and is in the benefit of the community. I guess I, I have to give the, the introduction because I'm the oldest here. So, and uh, to be honest with you, when I first heard about artificial intelligence, I uh, really didn't know what we were talking about. And uh, today I'm still trying to learn. Uh, but when, uh, but the experience, the accumulated experience over, I don't know, maybe 30, 35 years of practicing gynecology and especially uh, assisted reproduction have um, told me that uh, there are many things that we still have to, uh, to learn. And when we go to the neuroscience books and uh, read a little bit about the function of our brain, uh, in many places they say that we only use 10 to 20% of the capability of the brain. Some people say that this is correct. And some people say that this is exactly the percentage that the brain is using when uh, we are sleeping 
or resting in some way. But the rest of the day, uh, we use our entire brain. So our entire brain in the, in the, during 24 hours is used in different areas for different functions. With so many inputs that we are getting, we are able uh, to internalize, to understand, and to proceed with uh, and process some uh, functions that go from the very early in the morning when we go to breakfast uh, to the end of the day. And in the meantime, we are getting the, uh, the information uh, from many uh, different sources. And specifically, when we talk about our, our job uh, and specifically about ART, uh, you know today that uh, there are many, many, many different sources of information, including the one that is, has been recently added with uh, the different social media. So today, uh, to process all the, this information, and to get something out of it that uh, that can make our our uh, profession better and improve our outcomes in assisted reproduction is becoming more and more difficult. And again, our brain is totally occupied. We are unable to um, give more of ourselves. So basically, uh, when it comes to our our field and cycle of assisted reproduction can be divided in different steps from uh, managing and preparing the, the patient, stimulating, monitoring the patient and pick up, then all the work done in the lab and then uh, the, the transfer and subsequent outcomes. And uh, to be honest, uh, there are many things that we still uh, have to learn. Those who started with me many years ago, um, stimulating patients, if you see how the field of ovarian stimulation has changed apart from vaginal ultrasound and a little bit uh, with some new drugs, there, there has been no such a huge uh, change in in ovarian stimulation. The drugs are pretty the same, and the way that we stimulate and monitor our patients is very similar. And we are, 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 we are not capable of, of uh, understanding how can do it better. Although we know that there are some uh, genetic traits that may or may not affect the, the response of the patient to ovarian stimulation, and maybe some other characteristics of the patient that are uh, stated and written in the, in the clinical records, but we are totally un unable to uh, link this information with uh, the response to ovarian stimulation. And, uh, and the same is true for the embryo, for, the, for, for embryo uh, selection. Uh, in the best case scenario, a good embryo that has been even analyzed by, uh, pre by pre-implantation genetic testing may have a 65, 70% implantation rate. So there's still a 30 to 35% of embryos that do not implant and we don't know why. And uh, we want to learn from these embryos, but uh, in the past we have done many, many logistic regression, regressions and uh, the truth is that uh, we are stopped there. 
So the opportunity that um, bioinformatics and um, all the algorithms that are created with, with, with all the data that are generated from our patients brings us is to advance in the different steps of an assisted reproduction cycle. And I think that today we have two good examples. One will be dedicated to the uh, monitoring process, let's say the first step of the, of the whole cycle, of the whole, of the whole process. And the other one will, will deal with the different characteristics of the embryos and the secretion of, of consumption of specific proteins that uh, brings, our, uh, brings uh, some clues to uh, select better our embryos. So I'm convinced that with all this technology, and these two papers are a good example how uh, we are advancing in the field, but uh, certainly we are at the beginning. Uh, in fact, we are considering infertility and sterility to add uh, a particular section devoted to artificial intelligence, because the number of papers that we are receiving are, uh, is increasing. And uh, that makes a lot of sense because people are uh, more and more using uh, artificial intelligence to analyze their databases to the point that uh, the bioinformaticians are becoming a fundamental part of our teams. So we started to be doctors and embryologists. Then we realized that we couldn't be both. So we started to take uh, biologists, not only biologists, but all, all other, other um, colleagues with uh, different degrees, and they were trained in embryology. So we had doctors and embryologists. Then we had uh, statisticians to publish the papers, and now we can't live without uh, bioinformatics. So my introduction is uh, that I think is you have picked up a, a, a fundamental uh, point, a, a fundamental field, and I hope uh, to learn more about what uh, we have learned until now, and, and maybe uh, to get some clues and some light in what we can uh, get in the next uh, five to 10 years. I thank you again for, for being here, for organizing the, the meeting, and hope you enjoy the whole um, journal club. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Payset. And speaking of uh, bioinformatics and how we can apply that, we um, I'm going to give the floor to Dr. Lovka so he can explain to us a little bit of what we're talking about today. Hi. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, thanks for inviting me to this journal club. Um, so I was asked to give a very short and a very brief introduction uh, to the concepts of machine learning and neural networks for assisted reproduction. So I wanted to start with some basic terminology, um, which, which is probably familiar to most of you. Um, but we see the term AI used pretty much everywhere today. Um, and in most of those cases, what people are referring to when they say AI is machine learning. Um, and machine learning is a subset of AI. Um, but more particularly, most of the advances that have come in the last couple of years have really been from what's called deep learning. Um, and deep learning is a subset of machine learning. Um, so it's important to keep this hierarchy in mind. Um, and I'll kind of talk about what each of these topics are in the next few slides here. 
So the most common form of machine learning is supervised learning. Um, so that's where we're learning a function to map an input X to an output Y using labeled examples. Um, and X can be anything from microscopy images uh, to ultrasound images or electronic health record data. Um, and Y can be something like a treatment outcome or it can be a clinical decision that was made um, or really any other output that we're interested in predicting um, or replicating. Um, and some of the most common forms of supervised learning are things like logistic regression, linear regression, uh, and of course, neural networks. So let's start with a very simple example. Let's say we want to predict the outcome of a patient's IVF cycle. Um, we can approach this problem with logistic regression, um, and you can think of that as a one-layer neural network. So the one layer is our input layer, which has variables like the patient age, the diagnosis, um, whether they're using donor eggs, et cetera, different variables that we think might correlate with our outcome. Um, and then the output could be whether there was a live birth or not. Um, and usually a logistic regression model will do a pretty good job um, at addressing this type of problem. But we can also address the same problem with neural networks. Um, and the question is, how is a neural network different from logistic regression? Uh, and there are two main differences. The first is that a neural network will have the addition of hidden uh, or intermediate layers within the model architecture. Um, and then the second is within those intermediate layers, we have nodes with nonlinear activations that turn the problem from a linear one into a nonlinear one. Um, and so it's together, it's these additional hidden layers and these nonlinear activations that allow us to model more complex relationships between our input variables and the outcome we're interested in predicting. So then the question is why neural networks? Why do we use them? Um, the reason is that traditional machine learning models like logistic regression will plateau in performance. Um, and what that means is we can continue to collect more and more training data, but we will reach a point pretty quickly where there's no amount of, of further data that's going to improve our performance. It's going to plateau and stay that way. Um, and usually a small neural net will give us slightly better performance than a, a regression model like logistic or linear regression. Um, this isn't always true, there are some exceptions, but in general, if you have a well-designed neural network, you should see an improvement in performance with that compared to a traditional machine learning algorithm. Um, but of course, the most exciting results and the best results come when we have large data sets um, and we use large or what are called deep neural networks. Um, and it is this combination of large data sets and large or deep neural networks that together make up the concept of deep learning. So then how do we apply neural networks to images? Um, that is done with what are called deep convolutional neural networks. Um, so instead of having inputs to our model like patient age and BMI, um, we instead use the pixel values that come from these images. And we use convolutions, which are done from a set of kernels um, that are measuring different edges and textures within the image. And those edges and textures are then used to create a set of features that can then predict or make our final classification of the outcome that we're interested in. So deep CNNs are very commonly used to predict clinical outcomes from images. Um, so a very obvious example would be if we have images of embryos at the blastocyst stage, we can train a deep CNN to predict the likelihood of those embryos reaching clinical pregnancy um, or fetal heartbeats uh, or any other outcome that we're interested in predicting. When we say training a CNN, what does that mean? So training a CNN is we're learning the weights and biases in the network that minimize our prediction error. Um, and the weights 
are essentially they are the kernels that are performing these convolution operations. Um, and so the magic of training a CNN is that through the process, the model is able to learn on its own what are the right weights or kernels to use that give us the most discriminative, discriminative uh, features or the best features that are able to predict um, between our positive or negative outcomes that we're looking at. And so as many of you already know, um, deep learning has really revolutionized the field of computer vision um, to the point where deep CNNs can now outperform humans in many different types of classification tasks. Um, so some of the early deep CNNs uh, sort of came onto the scene a few years ago in 2012 with the introduction of AlexNet. Um, and it was around 2015 when some of the latest models like ResNet were shown to outperform humans in some challenging classification tasks. Um, and since then, we've seen numerous examples in the medical imaging community where deep CNNs are indeed able to outperform humans um, in these different types of classification or prediction tasks. So finally, to wrap up, what are some considerations uh, when we're applying machine learning to this field? Um, one of the most important is the problem definition. So have you selected the right inputs and the right outputs um, for your particular problem? A common question is how much data should we use? Uh, this can be anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 data points is common, um, but some problems require much more data than that. The quality of data is of course important, meaning do you have mislabeled outcomes? Who prepared that training data and, and where do the outcomes come from? Are they reliable? Um, do you have missing data? And if you do, how do you handle that missing data? Um, and then finally, generalization. So do you have bias in your training data? And is the model that you've trained, is that going to generalize to a new patient population? Um, and of course, there are many more uh, details to pay attention to when you're training models like these. Um, but I think at a very high level, these are the, some of the most important ones. So with that, I hope that was helpful for some of the audience here. Um, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to our uh, presentations coming up here. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lovke. It was, I think, very helpful, much needed too. Um, after the introduction, we're going to move on to the two paper presentations for today. Um, the first one is presented by Lorena Bori, a pre-doctoral PhD candidate and researcher at EV Valencia. Her paper is titled, An Artificial Intelligence Model Based on the Proteomic Profile of Euploid Embryos and Blastocyst Morphology, a Preliminary Study. And it was published in Reproductive Biomedicine Online in October of 2020. Lorena? Hello, everyone. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to this journal club. As all of you know, the two main factors responsible for the success of an IVF treatment are the endometrium and the embryo. Our research group, managed by Dr. Marcos Meseguer, have been exploring for ages non-invasive methodologies to improve the embryo selection and subsequently the clinical outcomes. In this regard, several algorithms have been developed with conventional statistics, taking into account data related to in vitro embryo culture, such as morphological grading, morphokinetic parameters, or even embryo secretomics. And nowadays, uh, the artificial intelligence enables us to analyze this data with more advanced techniques like the artificial neural networks explained just before by Dr. Kevin Locke. And the artificial intelligence also um, allows the, the analysis of raw embryo images without previous manual annotations. As you know, the incorporation of continuous monitoring for embryo development increased the objectivity in embryo selection. 
but manual annotations are uh, still subject to disparity among embryologists. So the incorporation of um, systems with computer vision capable of extracting objective and standardized information of embryo images and capable of performing automatic annotations uh, could reduce the subjectivity of the embryo selection. For these reasons, in this manuscript, we decided to develop an embryo selection model based on artificial intelligence. Uh, our main objective was to create a, a model capable of predicting uh, the likelihood of an embryo for achieving a live birth, which is uh, actually the most important outcome in our field. We used embryos from the oocyte donation program and euploid embryos to make sure that the chromosome content uh, was not affecting our live birth results. Firstly, we trained the model only with morphological data, and when, then we improved it by the addition of data related to embryo secretomics, because it uh, represents the protein and metabolic state of the embryo, and could be a non-invasive method of gathering information about embryo quality. All the embryos included were cultured in conventional embryoscopes until the blastocyst stage, and the spent culture media was collected on day five of development. Then we extracted morphological data uh, from blastocyst time-lapse images, and we extracted protein levels from the embryo culture medium. Then these variables were used as input data for the artificial neural network. On the one hand, we took a picture for each blastocyst, specifically at 111.5 hours of development, and for the image analysis, we collaborated with a group of mathematicians, which were experts in analyzing blastocyst images. So the images uh, were imported automatically into MATLAB software, and a standardization algorithm was run to normalize them in terms of contrast and resolution. Afterwards, the images were segmented into parts, uh, regions of interest, I mean that the expanded blastocyst was detected and the inner cell mass and detrofectoderm were also uh, identified. Finally, this algorithm obtained uh, the most important mathematical variables, which were seeking to uh, represent all the relevant characteristics of the images for embryo quality assessment and live birth uh, prediction. On the other hand, the protein analysis of the spent culture media was carried out with proximity extension site technology, which was capable of measuring 92 proteins simultaneously in only one microliter of sample. This analysis gave us the results at normalized protein expression, which is a relative measurement where higher values correlate with a higher protein expression. Concretely, a difference of one unit, one NPX, means doubling of protein concentration. Then we performed a collinearity analysis in both morphological data and proteomic data to check if the variables were highly correlated. I mean that we use the collinearity analysis to identify the independent and non-redundant variables. The artificial intelligence technique that uh, we used was an artificial neural network, in this case, a multi-layer perceptor, associated with genetic algorithms by the backpropagation learning method. In this case, we performed three architectures of artificial neural network with different input data. It means that um, we consider different variables. 
All the embryos uh, were divided into 70% for the training, 15% for the validation, and 15% to test our model. And which were our findings? We used uh, conventional statistics to explore the protein levels in all the samples. And we noticed that only 25 proteins had different value among samples. I mean that the rest 67 proteins had the same value for all the samples, identical values, including control culture medium and embryo culture medium. So these proteins were not useful for us in the next steps. Then we applied a collinearity analysis on these 25 proteins and only seven proteins passed this analysis. However, note that these proteins didn't obtain significant differences between embryos that achieved a live birth and embryos that did not achieve a live birth. So the collinearity analysis select different variables, in this case, different proteins, that conventional statistics as t-test or t-score test. Now we are moving on the results uh, that we obtained for each architecture of artificial neural network uh, with the testing data set. Firstly, we trained the model with uh, morphological data extracted from the image analysis and all the proteins that had different values among the samples. And the success rate was 87.5% for positive live birth and 80% for negative live birth. And the next step was uh, to perform another architecture using only uh, those proteins that um, passed the collinearity analysis. And here, the prediction for positive live birth was higher. Actually, this architecture was uh, capable of classifying correctly all the embryos that achieved a live birth. And then we performed another architecture with only two proteins, those that had the best score in the collinearity analysis, which were the matrix metalloproteinase 1 and intraleukin 6. And surprisingly, this model classified correctly all the embryos those that led to a live birth and those that didn't lead to a live birth. And these were our findings and we are aware that the main limitation of our study is the small number of embryos available to test our model and also the overfeeding phenomenon which is usually affecting this kind of, of artificial neural network models. However, we try to avoid this by defining the input and output variables, typically in a conventional machine learning method. And the overall success for the blind test should be considered as evidence of non-overfitting because uh, these 11 embryos were uh, unknown for the model. They have never been analyzed before. And the, the blind test achieved as overall success of almost 73%, which is also high when we are talking about live birth prediction. Finally, we concluded that the introduction of artificial intelligence in IVF laboratories um, could help embryologists to predict the success of an embryo for achieving a live birth. And the combination of the proteomic analysis in spent culture media and the morphological analysis in blastocyst images have never been previously assessed using artificial intelligence. And we found that it could be a promising tool uh, to select the most successful embryo, at least in a U-plate cohort. And that's all from my side. If there are any questions, I would be pleased to answer them in the following discussion. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Lorena. That was, a, I think, a great example of how AI can be applied in the embryology lab beyond the, the myriad papers on, on time-lapse itself and how other factors can be factored into, how other parameters can be factored into AI. Um, now for another example of an application of AI in day-to-day -day clinical decision-making, we have Dr. Jared Lettery. Dr. Lettery is a reproductive endocrinologist and is a partner at Seattle Reproductive Medicine, as well as the co-founder of QuickStep Analytics, a company focused on AI in ART specifically, including decision support and image analysis. He's going to be presenting our other paper for today, Artificial Intelligence and In Vitro Fertilization, a Computer Decision Support System for Day-to-Day -day Management of Avarian Stimulation During In Vitro Fertilization. Dr. Lettery, go ahead. Thank you, Andres. So thanks for the opportunity to present this. Um, these will be some data that we've accumulated uh, and presented and published. Um, we presented it in the fall at ASRM in 2019 and subsequently published it in FNS in November. And a little bit of background just to add to what Kevin related. Um, this concept of AI is not new. In fact, it dates back to 1951, when interestingly enough, it was used mostly to program games. These tools literally filled two rooms. Um, I'll come back to this concept of uh, the chest play program here at the end of this talk, but interestingly enough, also in 1955, it was used to predict the outcome of elections, um, somewhat significant given this day in the United States. What has changed, and this is dramatic, uh, we now have massive amounts of electronic data in EMRs. We have accessibility to very scalable computers and software and an evolving set of tools that can now analyze them. And that was an excellent presentation, Lorena, about its application to embryology, spanning the scope of image analysis and protein analysis. And we have the opportunity now to apply this across every aspect of what we do. We first explored this with our team uh, in, 19, in 2015, asking a question, can we predict using a neural net the time of trigger and see how well it matched to providers? The, the, the right-hand panel here is just an example, a placeholder of a neural net. And you can see what I'd like to highlight is just the cross-referencing that a neural net enables us to do. Uh, this is something that minute by minute we can't do, but a neural net can. This was a very rudimentary study in 2015 that we did. We used Cohen's Kappa just as a statistical analysis to get a sense for the degree of agreement. And we wound up with a 0.7 where one is complete agreement, calculating the accuracy. It was 85% agreement between what the neural net predicted as the best time for trigger versus what the provider did. That's not bad. This was a data set of about 200 cycles. The current study that we published, we looked at a, a similar concept, but more expansively across all the decisions during IVF. Uh, we, we segmented them down into four decisions. We were just interested to see if we could not design a program that would predict each of these four decisions, which I'll explain to you. We did a preliminary study looking at five different predictive analytics and then developed a hybrid algorithm to apply to ovarian stimulation each step of the way. The original algorithm was in R for the stat analysis and we converted it to C++. 
The four decisions that we settled on were whether to stop a cycle. This is typically what we go through, what we all go through in making a decision about a cycle. When we look at data, the panel on the right is such uh, uh, a stim grid where we have data listed across all days of stimulation. And one of the first things we decide is whether to stop or to continue. We do this intrinsically. So in this case of the example, we would all proceed. But if, for example, that estradiol on day five was less than five, we'd consider stopping. We also asked the, we trained the algorithm to look at dose adjustments if needed and the number of days in follow-up. So four uh, decisions. And you could select any degree of, of decisions. You could um, narrow this down or widen it to one or two, strictly a fielder's choice. We did uh, 2,600 IVF cycles for training data that were uh, that incorporated 7,376 visits, about 60,000 data points. For this study, we looked at uh, challenge cases of 556 cycles, which were naive, no prior exposure to the algorithm. And we've since expanded that and have challenged it with another 500 cycles, not part of this database, but it did support the conclusions. And we compared the DSS support, uh, performance to evidence-based decisions by the clinicians. We use, uh, just as a general measure of agreement, accuracy, sensitivity, and positive predictive value. These are three measures of agreements typically used in other settings looking at decision support systems when applied to clinical care. After we uh, generated our conclusions, we had it reviewed independently by a third party, the faculty and postdocs at the Department of Statistical Analysis here in Seattle at the University of Washington, just to get independent verification. This was IRB approved by an internal review and also an independent um, um, nonpartisan uh, IRB agency for final approval. And the results in a broad um, look at looking at things broadly, the four decisions, whether to stop, by that I mean trigger or cancel was 0.9 accuracy, whether to continue and return for follow-up 0.96, number of days 0.87, and the dose 0.82. There's a bit of a degeneration, and I'll explain that in a moment, to look at this a bit more granular and look at the three uh, measurements of agreement, accuracy, sensitivity, and PPV. If you just look at sensitivity and positive predictive value, you'll notice they start degenerating as we go down. And that's partly related to the number of decisions. Not that many changes were made in the dose. Most of the time it was held constant. And the number of days to follow up, most of the time, they were at one or two. But the other aspect of this is you'll notice these decisions are binary. And as you add the number of decisions to the decision support system, just in this model, it erodes a little bit, but it's still a rather respectable uh, accuracy, sensitivity, and PPV in this setting. For the discussion, I'd like to couch AI, which we reviewed in our opening remarks, in the context of clinical decision-making. So there's been an evolution as a clinician for all of us who make clinical decisions in patient care from just using expertise, how we've been trained, how we view things, to a transition in the late 70s to evidence-based medicine. And that was the basic decision tree that applied and still usually does. 
But I think we're on the cusp of changing things dramatically and adding artificial intelligence to this decision-making that we do. This is not to divorce decision-making from clinical care or the responsibility of the clinicians, but it is to say that the ability of artificial intelligence, whatever model you want to use, convolutional neural nets, um, any one of a number, it can make decisions more accurately and complementary to what we can do as clinicians. Uh, I think it's here to stay. It certainly works in other uh, specialties. ART is a perfect setting to do this, particularly given the binary nature of a lot of our decisions. So in conclusion, this is the first iteration of a predictive algorithm, a decision support system looking at these four key management points. The dose changes had the lowest accuracy, but they were also the relative, they were relatively infrequent. Not that many people changed doses. Sometimes people changed them because of a lack of response, trying to get more, uh, as we all do sometimes. At times, the doses were changed because of an antagonist. This is all debatable. There is literature that runs counter to the need for any dose changes, we all know. But I think in the future, we're going to see this as part of our decision-making that's going to be integrated into what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I wanna be cautious of time here. So I'm gonna end with these two slides here. So the slide on the right is a chess system. This goes to something Kevin had mentioned earlier. There were, this is a, was published in Science in 2018. Stockfish is a program that used an immense database, 70 million positions per second this can process, but it was programmed using centuries of data from chess players, a huge, huge database for training. In 2017, Google generated a different algorithm, just plugging in game rules, that's it. This is a very limited database, but the algorithms that they wrote were powerful enough that when they matched this rather extensively trained stockfish against AlphaO, the, the um, AlphaO won 28 times and drew 72 times. My point is that the databases that we need to train in the future are going to, to drop dramatically. And this is going to open up a lot of opportunities uh, and reduce the amount of work that re that's required to generate an algorithm. I'll go on to one other comment of how we communicate. We're going to integrate all of this in the phone in the future. Our patients are going to demand it. So this panels on the right are one example of what could happen if an algorithm makes a decision. In this case, just as an example, this is hypothetical and a mock-up. The recommendation is for FSH to continue for three days. A message can be generated by the algorithm awaiting final approval of a clinician and the clinician can either decide to approve, at which point a text would be immediately sent in a secure fashion to a patient. If any of you are familiar with the concept of digital natives versus digital immigrants, those that are less than 20, 25 years old are digital natives. Most of us on this call are digital immigrants. Our learn, all, everything we're learning about the digital world is kind of layered onto a background of paper books. The generation and our future patients will not tolerate that. They are strictly by the phone. Uh, I think I'll end there and turn it over to Andres for discussion. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to present to the audience. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Literary. I think this provides very, very, very important insight as to how we can apply these technologies, not only, well, number one, to eliminate some of the subjectivity of day-to-day -day clinical practice, but also, as you were showing, to, to even interact directly with patients as, as they will very likely demand in the, in the very near future, if not already. Um, in terms of the discussion, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Emre Selly, the Chief Scientific Officer here at EVRMA Global and a professor at Yale University. Dr. Selly. Thank you, Andres. And just before I start, Dr. Literary, I am actually taking notes with a pen. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me... Uh, so uh, I think it's definitely an immigrant. Uh, uh, I'm right here with you. But we'll <laughs> right. get to the point where we can use unstructured data analysis and what you and I say will just be uh, synthesized. Actually, I received that as a, as a gift from my kids, but I couldn't make it work. Anyway, <laughs> so as I, uh, I would like to welcome everyone to the discussion section of uh, EV Army Global's Journal Club. Today, we have a very exciting group of panelists. And when we put together the panel for today, we aim to cover three main domains. The first one was, of course, AI. And we have Kevin Lovke here, who was kind enough to join us and already gave a very nice uh, presentation. Um, as clinician scientists, we have, of course, Antonio Pellicer, and uh, we invited Dr. Thomas Molinaro, who is the clinical director at EV RMA New Jersey and CEO of EV America. From the world of embryology, we have two very prominent embryologists, each of whom made significant contributions to the advance of the field. The first one is Marcos Meseguer. He is the senior author of the um, paper presented by Lorena Bori. And, uh, and he is a scientific supervisor and senior embryologist at EV Valencia uh, and a very prolific researcher in the field of AI application to IVF laboratory, as well as time-lapse imaging. Last but not least, Dr. Danny Sakas, scientific director at Boston IVF, who also made significant contributions to the application of big data in the IVF laboratory. So we have a number of questions that are already coming in. And uh, one of them uh, is trying is asking whether application of morphokinetics, uh, which I think I would direct to um, Marcos Meseguer, would it be helpful in the in the case of AI application? Is it applicable to AI? I, I think I know the answer, but uh, I would like to get Marcos's position on it. Yes. Thank you, Andre. Well, first of all, I would like to thank the invitation to this uh, meeting, and also I would like to congratulate Andres for the organization and Andre for this wonderful uh, uh, opportunity. Well, it's true that, uh, in fact, in the study that we did uh, with Lorena and the interaction that we have with the uh, University of Sao Paulo, because there is a very bright mathematician there, we play not only with images, also with morphokinetics. And the predictions were with morphokinetics were, were also very good. And in fact, the initial studies that we started with them that were easier for us was just providing all the annotations that were coming from the Thylas instrument, for example, the embryoscope, which is a huge amount of data for each one of the embryos. We have like 20 numbers for each one of the embryos to be analyzed. And the, the correlations were interesting. At the end, what we did is playing with different sorts of data. We, we play with the information from the images we play from the information of morphogenetics, and also we play with all the information that is coming from the media which the embryos are growing. And we try to pick up those that were more predictive. The results from morphogenetics are very interesting. The important point of morphogenetics is still some of the data that we have in the past was done by 
morpho morphokinetics obtained by manual annotations of each one of the embryos, which is, which means that probably this data is a little bit subjective and has variability between the embryologists. This situation is solved now because the current softwares of time labs are doing the annotations automatically. So we are starting to have a very good quality data from coming from the embryos because they're coming from softwares that are doing the annotations always at the same way. So the, let's say that morphogenetics by itself is becoming more relevant for selection because the quality of the data that is coming is better. Thank you so much, Marcos. Uh, I would like to ask a, another question to uh, Thomas Molinaro, if I may. Uh, Thomas Molinaro, I have watched him do presentations monthly on evaluates, I don't know how many data points uh, monthly uh, for a clinic that does thousands <laughs> of IVF cycles and tries to make decisions, I think that are uh, both clinically and, and I, I assume financially relevant. Uh, can you, without giving too many of your secrets up, explain to us how you do it now and what would you find helpful if if there was an additional learn machine learning helping you? Thank you, Emery, um, and thank you for the opportunity to participate. Um, I think what's really important and, and what this really allows, what these uh, artificial intelligence networks really allow for, is is you know comparing um, a lot of data points at once, and it, it's really it's interesting to see. The interaction between different data points and, and trying to understand and anticipate in advance how a change in one department might change things in other areas. And I think that you know modeling, um, you know uh, something as simple as what time you start morning monitoring in the morning, um, and then trying to understand how that might affect staffing at, at different levels in, in other parts of your clinic is is a really powerful way that we might even see this happening. Um, you know, I think that there's, um, you know, as Dr. Latier um, presented, uh, you know, decision making there is, is at the time of uh, STEM review is a huge time, uh, you know, it's a time waste in a lot of ways. You know, when you have thousands of cycles and you have to spend, you know, two to three minutes on each patient, you can uh, understand that if we could simplify that process, and we're always looking for ways to simplify it here to try to make it, um, you know, uh, more efficient and, and evidence-based, right? I mean, I think if you had a, if your EMR told you what you should be doing based on evidence and past experience, then it, it makes your decision-making a lot easier. So just in terms of how do we make our physicians more efficient? How do we make them more evidence-based? There's a tremendous opportunity to apply this, this type of technology moving forward. The hardest part, I think, is going to be getting the physicians to acknowledge that a computer might be as smart as they are, or smarter. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think the time uh, that they save may, may help them be convinced easier. I, I, after I see your volume, I, I understand how this could be very helpful. If you're doing only two, three hundred cycles a year, that's I, I'm not sure you need, you need the computer, but with this amount of uh, volume, it's absolutely necessary. Uh, going back through the other questions, I, I want to skip again to embryology. Denny Sakas. Uh, you and I worked on some big data applications and we had some failures. What do you see as the potential pitfalls of uh, these approaches, at least in the IVF laboratory? Um, it's interesting. So, you know, I, I was interested in uh, in the paper by, by Lorena because, you know, genetic algorithms was something we were playing around with uh, more than 12 years ago now with, with some data sets we had. Um, the, and, and you know the criticism then is you're predicting something because the maths can predict it. 
So, uh, you know, to, one of the questions that always comes up is that are you forcing the maths to actually give you a, an outcome? So I'd be interested to hear maybe Kevin and Marcos's um, uh, answer to that. Um, in, you know, in terms of the embryology lab, uh, one of the, the things with, um, you know, artificial intelligence as an automation and, and other areas of automation, uh, one of the concerns is that everything's being automated. And it was interesting hearing, you know, Thomas and it'd be interesting to hear uh, Antonio's um, concept on this is that in the end, are the machine's going to take over our job. And that's the sort of the, the perennial question that, that we're, we're always asked in terms of uh, pro producing this type of data, you know, whether it's the, the embryologist or whether it's the clinician or whether it's some, you know, some other facet of our, our, our work. So I think that's um, the interesting part, I think, that, that we have to come to terms with. So it'd be interesting to hear, you know, some of the other comments, I think, from, from the field too. Thank you, Danny. I have two questions about uh, for uh, Lorena Bori and Marcos about their papers. Um, one is about the culture media effect. Were they able to? Uh, were you able to check if uh, the uh, the algorithm is affected by the type of culture media? And the second question is whether did you saw anything or you checked anything regarding the different impact of embryo sex on the um, on the algorithm? Hey. I don't you go ahead, Lorena. Okay. In, in this study, we use the same medium for, for all the samples. Uh, it's a single step medium. So uh, we didn't know if uh, we can use uh, this, the same analysis in another medium. But uh, at least we know that with this medium, it, it works well. So, yes, we. We may speculate that, that that type of algorithm may may not work with another type of media, and we are aware about that. And in our case, it was even very difficult to be able to run a study like this with the same media because of we are all the time changing media and I mean checking new brands, new protocols. It was very difficult to find a set of of these AT embryos coming from PGTA, euploid, and using the same media. But it's a challenge to be able to apply or to generate an algorithm that will related with the secretomics that will fit with all the media. It's a challenge that will be difficult to achieve for sure. This is why, uh, I mean, using images, at least we're a little bit out of the problems of these kind of things. And the other question was about the sex, which is very interesting, actually. We haven't spent time, I mean, we haven't think about that, probably because we cannot do it in Spain, and it's not, uh, let's say, legal to think about these kind of things or using clinically. But I'm pretty sure because, uh, in fact, uh, just two days ago, I had one of my PhD students is bioinformatic, and without telling him anything, he's coming from India. And I know that in India, these things are very interesting for the population. He came to me with some data about difference in, in the oxidation of the media related with the sex of the embryos. So I'm pretty sure that we can find something interesting about that there. Perfect. I, actually, I think almost 10 years ago, we were working on near-infrared trying to detect bovine embryo sex, but a lot changed since then. So I'm sure it can be done better, better right now. Um, I, I have a general question for, for the clinical application. I, I'm actually learning. I always thought of uh, artificial intelligence application uh, 
you transition the clinic to improve things. But now from Dr. Lettery's work and Thomas Malinaro's comments, I think it can also be like improve outcomes, but it could also be probably used to save time and be more standardized. Uh, so I would like to pose this you know, question to people who are more active in the clinic as physicians. Where do you think the biggest, quickest, I guess, called bang for the buck would be in the AI application? Is it uh, making it easier for us uh, for what we already do or, or, uh, or putting together things that we don't even know that they interact uh, to achieve uh, better outcomes? I, I can comment on that, Dr. Selly. Yeah. So I, I think it's going to be across all spheres, um, operational, clinical management, communication, and in the lab. They will all be interrelated. I think there will be initially time savings and efficiencies that we could appreciate. And also, as I mentioned, communication. But over time and gradually, just the nature of machine learning will enable us to improve outcomes. So initially, I don't expect to see dramatic changes and improvements. And I think that's holding the technology to a higher standard than is warranted right now. But with continued learning, just the whole concept of machine learning we will move forward with improvements in outcome uh, on all levels. So for example, um, protocol selection can be far more intelligently done in a patient who's not successful with a cycle. Machine learning will enable us to reflect back on patients with a similar profile and a similar outcome. What's the next best protocol? And we'll inch our way towards better, uh, better outcomes. I'll stop there and let um, uh, others comment. Tom or Dr. Pins, Thomas Molinaro, would you? Yeah, like? I, I I agree completely. I think you know the initial the the low hanging fruit is in making us more efficient, and I think over time that will, as you mentioned, it will make it more palatable and more acceptable to to clinicians to use this information. But you know, you think about when when we do review with our fellows, and we have to sit there and try to to determine you know, some of these difficult decisions, having access to uh, evidence-based decisions from, a, you know, from an artificial intelligence network will make it a lot easier for us to make some of those more difficult decisions as well. So in terms of time saving, in terms of improving outcomes, I think there's a, a lot of benefit that's, that's here in this, in this technology. It's just about bringing it to the clinic in a way that is um, thoughtful and, and ultimately um, you know, acceptable to the, to the clinicians. You know what? What you don't want is to spend all this time and effort in in creating a system that the clinician ignores because they think they know better, um, which I think we're, we're, we've all been guilty of at times. That's true. Uh, Dr. Lovke, Kevin. Uh, now, now the tough question. Uh, years ago, uh, when Denny and I were trying to work on metabolomics application. Um, to embryo culture medium, there was a very wise biochemist uh, at Yale uh, who told me, you will never be successful because there's too much water and, and, and the effect size is small and the impact is small and variability is too high. And I, I don't know if I have the articulateness to explain what he meant, but I, I now understand what he meant after many failures. Basically, you are dealing with a data group that may change from clinic to clinic, uh, sample to sample, pH to pH for culture, or you know, method to method. 
do you see the the algorithm you algorithms you develop specific to clinics or more globally effective and how will you go between those assumptions yeah i think that's a really important question um you know i think a lot of groups who are working on these problems are of course they're taking data sets from their own clinic or or set of clinics that they work with and demonstrating success for that patient population um, which is the natural place to start. And then that was one of the points I raised in my presentation was, okay, once you build that model, is that going to generalize to a new geography, a new set of clinics, a new country? Um, I think that's an open question. I don't think that's one that's been addressed by um, any of the papers that I've seen so far. I think to me, the key to success here is that we do wanna to move towards generalization, I believe. And I think to do that, it requires building a diverse enough data set that you're able to um, have the confidence that you will succeed in that generalization. So for example, if we're building a CNN to classify embryo images in terms of whether they're gonna lead to pregnancy or not, um, the goal should be we want to measure something that is intrinsic to the embryo. We don't wanna measure something that's the embryo in the media and this geography and this type of patient that went through IVF because now we have a bias in our training data. Um, I do believe that if this technology is to succeed, it should be about finding the intrinsic properties to the embryo that can predict success or failure. What that might mean is when you do go to combine these different data sets and you're aiming for generalization, you might see not as good of a performance across everything that you've collated together compared to maybe you can optimize and, and get really good performance on one subset of data. Um, but I believe, I think that's the path forward, at least from my perspective, is to aim for those tools that will generalize by building diversity in the data and, and aiming to measure intrinsic properties that really are about success or failure and not some other artifact of the training data. Um, with that said, I, you know, I know there are people who believe that maybe you do need to personalize these algorithms to each clinic. And, and I think that's actually a really interesting debate um, and one that I'm, I'm open to hearing other opinions on as well. Uh, thank you very much. This is very nicely said. Marcos, can you comment on the same topic or? About the yes, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested on that, and also I would like to underline because we have, I mean, suffered between brackets when we start a new technology and we start to do it. Then uh, the classical uh, researcher or clinicians are coming and say, okay, but we don't believe anything unless you have a randomized control trial. But uh, the point here is to to be able to, uh, let's say, to answer the question or, or to or let's say to justify that if we introduce a technology like this, we are going, to, first of all, to have an improvement in our results, it's going to kill all this technology because it will be probably very difficult to demonstrate an improvement in the results at, at big scale. I mean, maybe an improvement of five or 10% in any outcome is almost impossible to demonstrate with a randomized trial because you need 1000 patients randomized, which every one of us know that is very complicated to run with. And probably we, we need to, let's say to be less, uh, to have a, a lower challenge, just waiting for being able to apply, uh, apply a technology that is going to give a result similar or being able to, for example, classify embryos or decide the type of protocol as good as one embryologist or one uh, clinician. That should be our, our challenge in the next steps is at least to see the, the capacity of this technology to do the same work that we do. But I mean, also, this, uh, this uh, technology or these calculations or this algorithm are improving continuously. 
So if we decide to do a randomized trial now, for example, I'm pretty sure that in the next two years, the technology has evolved quite a lot and all these things that we are actually doing will become too old. So there's no time now for this type of studies, I believe. And also the other point that Kevin mentioned, which is related with the study of Lorena, is that if we focus, for example, in the secretions of the media, it's affected by the type of secretions that are used differently in the clinic. But if we focus on one characteristic, which, which is unique of the embryos, and the embryos are the same here than in uh, China, then probably we will be able to be much more successful. And they were when we started the algorithm, they were just saying, okay, the algorithm that you have developed in Valencia work in your clinic and in other place because it was developed under your conditions. That probably is true because those algorithms were very simple, but actually we're working with uh, tons of data and the, the, the bigger the number of data that we have, the, the better is the outcome. And, and it, we cannot compare what we did uh, 10 years ago, what we're, we are doing now with artificial intelligence by far. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. There's an important question uh, that coming from the audience there. I'm trying to address all the questions that come and I'm trying to put them together. I want to ask this to Dr. Lettery and also Dr. Pelissari if he would comment. Uh, there is, of course, inaccurate data in electronic medical records. It could be intentional. It could be systemic. Sometimes, you know, your program doesn't have one diagnosis, so you got to choose a diagnosis. So if you don't see the diagnosis you want, you kind of click one of the other eight, you know, available diagnoses. How would that affect um, uh, the application in a specific clinic and more importantly, generalization of the algorithm? That's a great question. So the concept, uh, the question goes to the issue of uh, uh, data modeling and homogeneity of data, uniform definitions of clinical entities, and trying to have a uniform collection of clinical data on which we can reliably make diagnoses. So for example, a term like polycystic ovary syndrome uh, is vague, it's qualitative, as opposed to AMH value of 12. That's a quantitative measurable plug-in value that can drive the algorithm. The other, so I think the, the point is very well taken. There are some efforts for a joint uh, data model where the data is uniform, good data in, good data out, solid decisions. But the other thing um, that Kevin had referenced the, and um, um, we also, I think, mentioned this um, when Marcos was just talking, um, I think it is possible given the different tools that we have to have a personalized approach for a specific clinic how they do things. And I think we can generate site-specific algorithms for lack of a better term. So that clinic can have a set of tools that practices the way they do. I also think that'll increase the uptake of this technology. Doctors don't want any control taken from them. Anybody who does clinical medicine, that person knows best. So if we can tailor the algorithms to a particular practice, It'll reduce the need to have this uniformity in def definitions in a joint data model. But I also think it may increase uptake. I'm not advocating that, but that's my opinion. Dr. Pellicer? Well, the other point I would like to emphasize is the fact, I mean, we are uh, using electronic clinical records since uh, maybe 25 years, long time ago. And you have to train the doctors. You have to train the doctors because uh, people don't feel uh, the different uh, um, places 
And then when, when you try to get back to the data, um, many, many, many things are missing. So it, with the evolution of our electronic uh, records, what we have done is uh, to put uh, some breaks uh, in order to be able to continue with the clinical chart. So if you don't fill that properly, you don't continue because otherwise um, doctors are very busy and, uh, and uh, many, uh, a lot of information is missing because training is uh, absolutely unnecessary. Otherwise, the information will, will be never useful. Thank you very much. Uh, Andres, did you have a question? <laughs> I, I just wanted to ask uh, briefly, mainly of Kevin, but I, I think everybody else can comment on too. Um, you've worked with a bunch of doctors, embryologists, biologists in, in your life, and you've probably struggled at times to explain some of these concepts to them. I, I wonder how you think is our, as physicians, as embryologists, how you feel is our sort of AI literacy um, and if you could have us improve or focus on a particular area of this to focus to understand what's coming to us, what would that be? Well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask that question to. Uh, I'll try to answer though. Um, you know, again, I think, so to me, defining the terms that you're working with is important, right? Because a lot of people use AI as an advertisement um, when really, you know, they might just be building a linear regression model, for example. Um, and so to me, it's important to talk about exactly what are the techniques you're using um, and the tools that you have. I think that's the first thing that has to happen um, in the communication between engineers and, and data scientists and then clinicians and embryologists. Um, and then I think education is important. I think having forums like this where where you bring people together and you can explain what are the tools that are available, um, what are the limitations, and, and having that conversation about it. It happens in many, many other fields. And I think I've seen it happen recently within the IVF community, which has been really excellent. Um, but I think that has to continue. And so um, I think it's there's a lot to be learned from both sides. But I do think um, I've seen it in many forums now, and I think so far, um, that's been the right approach to to help with that communication. I I, I agree. I think that's well put. Um, I think ultimately, unless somebody's deeply interested in this, uh, they don't have to worry about the things that you described, Kevin. Which, for those of us engaged, are wonderful thoughts. I think if we can answer the question for clinicians, how will this improve the care for my patient? Everybody on this call wants to take care of their patients in the best possible way. And if an AI tool can fulfill that goal, I think there will be uptake. doesn't matter what, the, what happens behind the screen or in the black box. If a clinician can lay claim to this tool will make your life better as a clinician and as a patient, I think that people will sign up. Wonderful. Any other comments? Emery, I just had a question. I, at, at, at the end of Gerard's talk, um, he mentioned how, uh, you know, the, the chess example of going from big data, and I think a lot of people are asking about big data, quality of data, how do we prove this? Um, Gerard, you mentioned that, you know, the, the chess example of going from big data to actually rules or smaller pieces of, of maybe more focused data, and that that actually had an equivalent performance. 
Um, can you comment a bit more on that? And can you sort of maybe give us an example of how those rules or what type of rules we could use to actually um, allow us to actually improve algorithms without the necessity of having, you know, billions of data points? Uh, thank you. And I'll answer briefly. I think Kevin could also provide some valuable insight on this. Um, I, I think if, if you go back to some of the earlier studies on image analysis, for example, in dermatology and ophthalmology, uh, to get a reasonably accurate uh, tool, you, you'd need 250 to 500,000 images. And uh, we're probably all familiar with using AI to diagnose melanomas or um, hypertensive disorders from ophthalmologic images, huge databases. But there are some recent studies coming out in clinical path that are using 5,000 images to distinguish lung cancer, adenocarcinoma versus squamous cell carcinoma. So it's like a funnel. Older technology, Marcos mentioned this earlier, that'll change dramatically year by year, almost month by month. And I would anticipate that the images that, that our embryology teams need will also diminish. Uh, so you can very rapidly generate the algorithms. Kevin, I'll let you comment because I think you'd have some valuable insights about this. I mean, I guess maybe two things come to mind. Um, one is, you know, most people who are training, like for image data sets, like you're referring to, Gerard, um, most people who are training those models are working off a pre-trained model that has been pre-trained on a data set with millions and millions of images, like an image is called an ImageNet database. Um, and then they're taking those pre-trained models, which have already learned what weights uh, to use for accurate classification tasks. And then they apply transfer learning with their smaller data set of say 1,000 to 10,000 images. They use transfer learning to fine tune that model and then adapt it to a new domain. So going from images of people and cars to images of pathology or microscopy images, right? So that concept of transfer learning, I think can happen in other domains and it is happening. Um, but I would come back to, to me, it is not just about the number of data points. I actually don't think the number is the most important. I really think it is the characteristics of the data. Um, and again, all of the things that might introduce bias into that training data set. So a hundred thousand images that come just from one clinic and one set of patients is not as valuable as 5,000 images that have come from 10 different clinics and 10 different populations. Um, so to me, it's not necessarily about the amount of data, it's about the quality of the data, the diversity in it, um, and what biases might be there, um, and if you can recognize those in your training data. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Pelliser, do you wanna, do you have a few final comments and then I'll, we'll hand it to Andres to close. No, I just learned a lot. So thank you very much to all of you for your participation because for me it was learning, machine learning. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Faith. I, I, this was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for, for participating today. I think we went a little bit over time, but I think it was totally worth it. Um, thank you to all of our audience and to the speakers for, for joining us and for taking the time to be here with us. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Andres. This has been another episode of Fertilipod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Thank you.